I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Wanarua people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Now, I think there's a lot of opportunity ahead of the wine industry and people who they really want to have a crack at it. They want to make it. They want to make this this their life's work. And um, God bless them. And uh, as long as they, long as they, uh, we all support them. I hope they keep going. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Ian Riggs is one hell of a guy. His contribution to the Australian wine industry is momentous. Chief winemaker and managing director of Brokenwood Wines for over 35 years, he has accumulated a list of accolades, awards and recognition that would make your eyes water. You name it, Ian has done it and then some. But more than that, Ian is the first to lend a hand and encourage anyone who shows dedication and passion for the Australian wine industry. A true veteran of Aussie wine, it's an honour to have Ian on the podcast today. Hi, Riggsy, thanks for joining me. Ashante, thank you for having me. And uh, I am sitting in the middle of the Wanarua country and it's a glorious day. You know what, I knew it would be. It normally is in the Hunter, no matter what the weather's like. But how is it on this fine winter day? Is the sun shining? Oh, yes. Not a cloud in the sky. And I'm very happy to let the place dry out a bit because, as you know, we've had a bit of rain up here. You have had a bit of rain, but I have a feeling that uh, good things are going to come. So hopefully that sun is is, um, potent at the moment. Yep. Yep, yep. Well, certainly all the pruners are out and they're uh, enjoying the the, the sunshine. It's sort of a... Our winters are full of layers, so you start off in the morning at sort of one degree and you have about 10 layers of clothes on and by 11 o'clock you're down to a (laughs) T-shirt. Yeah, you've got to come prepared. (laughs) So, Ian, let's go way back and tell me a little bit about how you found your way into this remarkable career that you have today. And do you remember an early memory of wine where it kind of made an impression on you? Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, uh, my family was off the land, um, wheat, sheep in South Australia and then a sheep property in Walker, New South Wales in the late 60s. Um, then we went back to South Australia and, and lived in Adelaide, 70 and 71. And my uncle and auntie both worked in the Riverland and both worked at two different wineries. Auntie Joan worked at um, Ljubljana at Marook and Uncle Jim worked at Wakery Co-op in Wakery. So I started doing initially um, cutting apricots in a cutting shed. You know, all those delicious dried apricots that you get mm. in the shops. They, someone actually has to, well, back then, cut them in half, discard the uh, the pip, put them into a, a sulphur um, oven and then uh, put them out on trays for drying and then graduated into uh, you know, picking oranges and other things and but all the while just kind of work, trying to work out what I was going to do um, by that stage, I was 16 and uh, could work out that I could start Rosewoodie College in 1972, uh, which I did do. Amazing. Can you stand apricots now? Is it something that you, you kind of look at and go shudder or do you still enjoy them? <laughs> um, no, I'm not that such a big fan of them because <laughs> um, part of the problem is, of course, the, uh, the sulphur, the burning sulphur that um, preserved them. Mm was um, fairly intense sometimes. So, um, no, when you, when you open that, first open that packet of dried apricots and you get, <laughs> you get that whack of sulphur, it um, brings back some memories. 
I bet. And how did you find Roseworthy? What was it like when you when you walked in through those doors and thought, this is what I'm going to study and this is it? Yeah, well, I actually, um, so our year was the, which included the likes of um, Alistair Purbrick, um, Bruce Redman, Wayne Falkenberg, you know, some of the great uh, winemakers uh, that, too, that we you know, have around these days. Um, uh, I, I did two years of agriculture um, because then it was a two-year wine course with an intake every two years, and we were the last of the two-year courses. And we're actually doing, a, a um, in a couple of weeks' time, a reunion of 90, 1994 and before, pre, anyone who wants to come along to a Roseworthy reunion. So, mm. in other words, the campus for the wine studies closed in 1994 and even though it was part of Adelaide Uni um, from the late um, 70s, um, it actually closed as a teaching institution for wine. So we've actually been going back through, you know, um, I'm hosting a, a, a panel with Tamara Grishi and, and Ian Hongel from Torbrick on the night. And, yeah, we've just been chatting about good old times at Roseworthy and what people got up to. Most of it we can't talk about, of course. <laughs> I think it's so great when you when you look through back through an alumni or something like that because there are so many memories deep in there that you haven't thought about for so long and then it just takes a couple of someone to mention a name or something and you and it just floods it back so that must be pretty amazing especially with the amount of talent that's come through there. Yes, yeah, yeah, and and we it's interesting um, and I don't want to preempt what we're going to talk about in, in a couple of weeks' time, but the the, the whole because um, Roseworthy College, which started in the late 1800s, I think, um, was it was, a, it was a very old school based on an English system of tertiary education. So there were, there were a lot of rules. Um, mm. But as the, we went through the 60s and then into the 70s, they realised that, you know, they were pushing the proverbial uphill because young blokes and then eventually when in our year, um, 75, I think it was, or no, 74 was the first intake of, of shock horror females at, at Roseworthy College. Um, so they started a, uh, um, a horse husbandry course. Wow. Uh, so we had a, uh, and also wine, well, wine marketing, which allowed females to enter. But just prior to that, Pam Dunsford did break the, uh, the, uh, break the ice groundbreaking when she joined, um, the Roseworthy wine course in 72 or 73. So um, 72, I think it was. Gosh, and not, a, not only that, but you also, I mean, based on, off that kind of English model, I mean, you're also dealing with Australians, which is a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? <laughs> Trying to wrangle them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. I, I, you know, the, the larrikin aspect um, was, you know, always to the fore. Uh, as was um, the social side of things. Um, sport played a big part. Roseworthy, as a Roseworthy college, um, won the premiership, the Gawler and Light, I think it was called, um, Aussie Rules Premiership for that district in 71 and then again in 73. In the 80s, they introduced a rugby team and, and some of the... Um, winemakers that you know, we all associate with now, like Reese Ether and, and PJ Charteris and Matt Harrop, all played for mm. Roseworthy. And that 
there isn't there isn't a Roseworthy side, but there is what's called the Barossa Rams rugby team, which evolved out of the Roseworthy Ag College uh, rugby team, and they still wear the Roseworthy colours, which are pink and black. Gosh, I hope you get to, I mean, I imagine you're going to get to see a lot of old photos, hopefully, and, and some stuff that's, dread, you know, dredged up out of the out of the abyss, which will yep. be fascinating, won't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've still got my um, Roseworthy Plonkies T-shirt that I, that I drew, d- designed in 1974. So um, that's been on social media a bit. Oh, my goodness. Well, Ian, when I was looking over your, um, all your CV and, accolades I thought god where am I going to start with this there's just so much on there so I'm going to move to broken wood um which has been a lifelong relationship essentially with you uh how do, where do we start with that and, and and how have you seen the brand change and grow over that enormous amount of time with them uh it's been a journey um and it's been a fabulous journey there's no question about that some fabulous people um, the camaraderie that the shareholders have, it's still a privately owned company. Um, and as an example, we've just had our 38th um, graveyard lunch. Our first one was in 1984. Uh, we didn't have one in 2020. And that's where we provide lunch for all our um, uh, members on our mailing lists and their guests and I think we had something like 70 or 80 staff shareholders and children of shareholders working on the day. And uh, it was it's just it's one of those one of those unique um, uh, coming together of a common cause, and we all enjoy it, and everyone has a lot of fun. And the uh, our members and our you know people who come along to the day can see that you know Brokenwood really is a a very unique family. So, and that starts, goes right back to the get-go when James Halliday, John Beeston and Tony Albert bought the land in October 1970 and just the three of them and um, knew nothing about it. They drank a lot of wine, obviously, you know, cohorts, Lynn Evans and the Bulletin Place front row from 1968 onwards. Um, But Halliday used to visit this area with his father in the 1950s. So... Uh, the three of them, then the three became nine in 1978 when they bought the graveyard vineyard off Hungerford Hill. Then when Halliday left in 83, um, the nine became eight and three new shareholders came in. And now we've, over the years, as we need the money and people want to be part of our little family, we're about 27 shareholders, I suppose. So um, it goes back to that's the culture of the place. and. I was working at Hazelmere Estate in McLaren Vale. Um, it just won the Bushing King Trophy with a, you know, heaven forbid, a Chardonnay, um, the Clarence Vale Chardonnay, which then did go on to win other trophies in Adelaide and Canberra. Um, and, yeah, it was asked to uh, come up and build a new winery and, and uh, put Brokenwood on the path to expansion because it was basically a, a red wine operation and um, they wanted to, to make white wines. So, um, yeah, made the big move from take the car and made the big move from South Australia to uh, good old Cessnock. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable for any privately owned business to, to to be that successful for so long. What do you think makes Broken Wood what it is? And, and you talked about that kind of culture. What do you think makes Broken Wood so unique and, and so um, 
resilient? Um, well, part of it has to do with wine quality and, um, you know, this is not me having a big head, but over the years, right from the get-go, it was all about wines that people could relate to, could could drink on a daily basis. Um, and it's interesting. I'll give you an example. Um, recently, I was looking through the second head. There'll be a lot of you know, auction sites in Australia, the um, secondary market. And I was looking through a list of wineries, and I can't even, doesn't matter what auction site it was, and they have all the wineries listed by alphabetically. And there was probably, I don't know, two, three, four hundred wineries on this list, um, except no broken wood. And this happens time and time again that I'll look at an auction and there might be one bottle of broken wood or half a dozen. Occasionally there's more, whereas there'd be of another certain winery, there'd be pages and pages and pages. It's And that's in the secondary market, you also want to have you know your price and your reputation are built um, year after year and vintage after vintage. But it also tells me that people really enjoy drinking the wine that we make. Mm. And, you know, you don't see it back on the auction scene time and time again. You know? So we make wine that people want to drink. We make, and it's boring to cliche to say consumer-friendly wine, but we we stick to, if we're making Hunter Semillon or Hunter Shiraz, that's the style we make. Hunter Shiraz being light, medium-bodied, you know, maybe sometimes light-bodied. Hunter Semillon, low alcohol, drink it young or age it. We take fruit from Orange, from Beechworth, from McLaren Vale, and we, the wines we make represent those regions truly. And uh, people, you know, really enjoy drinking those wines. Mm. After all, that's that's what it's there to be there for, isn't it? It's there to be drunk, yes, enjoyed, absolutely. laughed absolutely. at. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So through the 80s and 90s when we were building, building broken, so when I arrived at the end of 82, I think the 82 production was probably in the order of 1,500 cases, maybe 2,000 cases. Um, and, you know, now we're a 100,000-case brand. But it's been built up very slowly over many, many years. And as tastes and fads and fashions change, we've hung in there. Um, so in the early 2000s, we were building our Cricket Pitch White, which is Sauvignon Blanc and Semillon Blend, to fairly substantial size uh, and then of course the um, uh, trade agreement with New Zealand came in and Australia got hit with a, with a avalanche so some people actually went from tens of thousands of cases of uh, a Sauvignon Blanc blend to almost nothing mm. um, we probably took a big hit and halved our production but we hung in there, we kept making the same style and we kept um, true to our um, our style of wine, and um, yeah, we're, we're almost back to where we were in in two thousand, which is you know, people people associate and trust the brand. Mm. I think that that's that's so true. Even um, when you when you discuss, perhaps you know, there was a, your amazing cellar door rehaul um, recently, and the, when you bring that up, or anyone talks about going to the hunter, it was always brought up that they would. Everybody wanted to visit the new Celador because the old Celador had such amazing memories for them. And, and you kind of see people kind of glaze over and talk about, oh, remember that day we walked into the Celador and then we just thought we'd go in for a quick tasting and we we're there for an hour and a half and then 
you know, we got these other wines open and you can just see how much the connection they had to the brand from that one experience. And, and so the curiosity of the new cellar door, which only gets amazing reviews, um, means a lot to them. And, and you've traveled quite a bit. So do you, what, who drinks broken wood wines other than Australians? Do we see it, you know, in the international market as well? Um, surprisingly, yes. It is, um, broken wood is, uh, my expression is broken wood is a major, um, exporter of insignificance or an exporter of major insignificance. Um, you know, we have had such a strong domestic market that we don't, we have never had the need to flog booze overseas at great rate of knots or where we're, you know, not making any money. Um, surprisingly in the wine industry, making money is sometimes hard to do. And when you're in export, it gets even harder. So when you had things like even going back to 87, um, the market crashed in 87 and, you know, through the 80s we were big in the UK and then that collapsed and then we did well in Canada and then that collapsed and then we did did well in America and that collapsed. And more recently um, through the GFC in in 08, 09 and uh, what's happened with China, you know, it's, it has, it hurts, but it's not a massive hit to our, either our production or our bottom line because we've invested so heavily in the domestic market. You know, we've, we've done the wine dinners. We've fronted wine stores. We've been there talking to people. We have a loyal following. And, you know, some of the silly things I see, we used to see with export was people would, you know, um, sell to the domestic market saying, well, you know, we sell all our wine export, but you can have this amount. You know, we've made this available to you. Thinking the people should be, oh, grateful, finally we can get hold of X, Y, Z wine and, you know, it's not, it hasn't gone to export. I think Australians look at that and go, nah, I'll go and buy something else. Mm. I think it's really important to have um, that loyal following of, of, who, of you know, your your local market really and I think Broken Wood it's it's clear that that's very important to them and I think that's yeah, a huge part of its great success now you've lived in the Hunter for uh how long now how long have you been 40 years my goodness <laughs> so I mean I wanted to hear this from you I can I can talk about why I think the Hunter is so unique but I wanted to hear from you what do you what do you think makes the Hunter Valley unique within Australia I know it's a big question but you're the person to answer it <laughs> no I don't know whether I can get it right and whether people agree with me um yeah we often say that the Hunter Valley should not be here as a viticulture region simply because of our climate um we do get a lot of summer rain uh, we do get humidity and weirdly, weirdly, we've got two, our two main varieties are most susceptible to a humid climate being Semyon and um, being Shiraz, uh, although Chardonnay and Vidalo are quite large plantings here. But stylistically, you know, they, they are quite unique and we do have um, a massive population on our doorstep. And certainly in the last couple of years during the uh, the pandemic, and we won't mention the C word, but during the pandemic, um, we've had great support from uh, our local population, being Central Coast, being Sydney, and then as people were travelling intrastate, we're getting great support from the region, so out, out west, Newcastle and, and further north. So we've always had that strong interest in the Hunter, people visiting the Hunter, being attached to it, 
and the the winemakers certainly in my last 40 years um, have stuck to their guns um, in, in a traditional sense in the styles but also you see the likes of Usher Tinkler and, and um, Matt Burton um, coming through now challenging traditional styles and making some t- terrific terrific wine so we're not just a one trick pony we do um, have different styles. Andrew Margan had it broke, um, you know, one of the first Albarinos to be to be released, and um, using Mavedra, Mike Aduli is using um, uh, Tariga. Mm. And we all support each other. We are, because when I arrived here and I went through, you know, Rose with him, my memories were of every lecturer um, basically telling everyone that the Hunter Valley should not exist and Hunter Valley wines were rubbish and, you know, how do you make good wine out of, you know, when it rains and you're just sort of sloshing around in mud all the time. And the 1970s was a very wet decade, so you could probably understand that. But when I was off the job, um, part of my thinking was, well, I was told all this about the Hunter Valley. I have seen some terrific reviews about what Hunter's done over the, you know, this was, say, 19... Um, 82, over the last 20, 30 years, can't be all that bad. And when you get here, you meet the people and you meet the grape growers and you you form your group of, of winemaker mates and we are we all get on. There's no question that we all get on and we all support each other. Um, you think, well, what we have here is pretty unique and we're going to keep we're going to keep going. We're going to keep we're going to keep surviving and we'll try different things, try different varieties. But Semyon Shiraz, Chardonnay, Vidal, we're going to stick to our guns and make the best wines we can. And I think the, I think the um, consumers appreciate that. Hmm. Yeah, definitely that that strength. I mean, when you when I think about the Hunter, I think about um, really successful brands, but I also really think about it, it's a force to be reckoned with in terms of its strength and and its varieties, but then also the people behind it. And I think that's made a huge huge impact that, you know, even the people that are pouring wines at the cellar doors, the experience that people get, the infrastructure that's there to host, you know, wonderful concerts and things like that. But when people still go to cellar doors, they have a great time. And I think, you know, that's testament to people caring so much about that ex- that that wholesome experience of driving up, being in a regional town and saying, you know, I want to go and do some tasting because it, it's something I won't forget. But, um. And, and and you see that if anyone's ever worked in the Hunter, a winemaker, for the rest of their lives, you can see it means so, something so important to them. And and I think that that's um, a beautiful reflection on on what you and, and everybody else has created up there. I want to talk a little bit about show judging. Uh, you've judged, God, I, I'm sure that you've lost count as well, international domestic shows all over. Um, what's the significance of show judging, the show judging system in Australian history? Uh, very, very important. Um, the first, well, we, we you go back to the, no, the early 1800s, um, the wine industry was centred around Sydney and then Parramatta and out to Camden. Hunter Valley sort of kicked off. We take 1828 as our starting point here and I'm chair of the, uh, the 200-year committee so we'll be holding some events in 2028. So put that in your diary, um, Sunday. The, um, uh, and, you know, wines were exhibited overseas from, um, 
1800 onwards. But the but this year, the uh, Royal Agricultural Society of New South Wales celebrates its 200 years. I started in 1822. And its first wine judging was 1826. So wine judging has been with us for a long time. The Hunter Valley Hunter River Vineyard Association was formed in um, 1847, and they used to conduct regular tastings of, um, you know, comparative tastings amongst uh, all the local vineyards in 1847. And it's it's a it's a way of um, not only benchmarking your wine against your neighbour, but also against other wines from overseas. Um, then it it sort of formed its own set of rules in terms of what you're trying to reward. And through the 70s, and when I started judging the late 70s and then into the 80s, it really was a strong focus on um, removal of wine faults. Uh, we were learning about wine chemistry. Um, we were learning uh, what Britannomyces can do, what um, if you leave a, you know, and on top barrel, you know, and what your volatile acidity is going to be and so on. Um, there was a lot of trial in, in, in the vineyard, but winemakers tended to dominate through the 70s and early 80s. And then it became the turn of the viticulturists to, to stand up and, and say, well, you know, Cabernet at 10% alcohol in Coonawarra is not really a thing. Um, may look good initially, but we need to look at our viticulture. And all these wines came through the show system and uh, it dramatically improved um, the, the quality of Australian wines. By the 82 vintage, 84, certainly by 86 Australia-wide, we were starting to see some, some terrific red wines in particular coming through. Uh, 1991 in Australia-wide were, was a great, great vintage. Um, and then the Chardonnay, um, sort of uh, tsunami started as well. So we were looking at different styles of, of Chardonnay. And all these came through the wine share system. And people were looking at what was rewarded and uh, what was not. And um, I think the wine industry took this took this feedback on. Then, then Len Evans decided that we were so strong on a technical sense that we needed more um, experience and more exposure on a stylistic sense. So when he um, was chairing shows through the 80s, he would always have dinners where the best wines of the world were put up against Australian wines. And that's the first time we saw a lot of these wines, a lot of Bordeaux, a lot of Burgundy, um, German Rieslings, everything, you know, eye-opening stuff. And how does that relate to what we're doing in Australia? So then, 2001, he formed the Len Evans Tutorial, of which um, I'm currently chair of the Board of Trustees. And uh, touch wood, we're going to be back on deck this year because we missed 2020 and 21. So we're back this year and it's our 20th tutorial. It's going to be bigger and better than ever. Oh, my goodness. Just hearing the words sounds exciting. So perfect segue because I wanted to talk about um, you being chairman of the Board of Trustees and member and uh, tutor as well of the Len Evans Tutorial and Foundation. Tell us a little bit about what the tutorial is all about, the criteria, um, because I think, you know, I've had a lot of people on the podcast that talk about it with such high esteem, but for a lot of people out there, 
they're they're not aware of, or if they're not, they should be aware of what yeah. the tutorial is all about. Um, yeah, well, I, what year did you do it, Shantae? That was nineteen years ago. Yeah, the last 19? one. Ah, so you're the last before the break. Um, well, you could probably talk more about it in terms of what uh, <laughs> what a participant gets out of it. But basically, it's a um, well, Halliday calls it the uh, you know the greatest wine school in the world. It's it's a one week intensive wine tasting, wine judging, open book masterclasses, exposure to the great wines of Australia, the great wines of the world, and where the modern Australian wine industry sits in what's happening in the in, in the world of wine. And it's it's getting more and more important because, and I buy a lot of the wine for the tutorial, and it is getting it is getting achingly obvious that some of these wines are getting so expensive that probably the only way some of these wines are going to be open and tasted is at the Lenevis tutorial. You know, and we're talking thousands upon thousands of dollars a bottle for for white Burgundy now. You know, it's it's just extraordinary. Um, luckily, we have a good seller, and luckily, the tutorial has a lot of very generous donors um, that support it and enable us to put the tutorial on every year. So it's only twelve scholars. Um, applications will open for twenty twenty three in May next year, and we have our current twelve, and we've got a carryover from the ones we selected last year, hoping that we're going to have one last year. But of course. Didn't happen, so they get carried over. Um, and it's, yeah, as I say, we've introduced a new judging bracket this year, so we're doing Riesling along with Chardonnay, Pinot, Shiraz and Cabernet, and these are 30 wines from all over the world. And it's not just about the technical aspects of the wine. And I have seen over the years some winemakers who would maybe downpoint a wine and then they start talking about the wine perhaps needing, you know, 0.3 more of, of acid or something, you know. <laughs> it's like, that is not, that's not what we're doing. You know, this is, this is how does that wine sit in all the other wines that you've tasted ever, not just the wines around it. And um, we, we hope it's an opportunity for people to taste um, in a very collegiate atmosphere there is a slight competitive nature because we do have a ducks at the end of the week, but in a in an atmosphere where discussions encouraged the enjoyment of such a wide range of wines and wines that frankly you would never get the chance to see um, uh, in you know in the in the with this big wide world of wine. Now, as an example, I remember when the year that Nick Ryan did it on the Monday we had on the Monday night I think we had a one or two bottles of Aubryon, uh Bordeaux, and Nick said, "Oh, that's you know, that's my first uh, bottle of my first wines of Aubryon I've tasted." By the end of the week, he'd tried another six <laughs> different vintages of Aubryon. Um, so I'm going to throw it back to you, uh, Shantae. What was your impression of the week? Oh well, there's no doubt it's the greatest lineup of wines I think you'll ever see, um, but it really is the opportunity to to expose yourself and to learn and absorb as much as you can, not only from the wines you're seeing but from the tutors and then your peers as well. I mean, you uh, have such a great – the 12 scholars that are chosen and the makeup of the group is winemakers, sommeliers, wine writers, and so you, you're able to really go in-depth 
and completely nerd out and learn as much as you can from all the people around you. So um, I think the experience for, you know, the scholars is just so enormous in their careers and what I, what I see from everyone is that it's a real turning point and that really lights a fire under your butt to want to give back and want to be better and, and continue um, the Australian wine industry to, you know, as, as best as it can be. So um, truly worthwhile uh, putting your name down. And I was going to say to you, you know, what is your advice for the future applicants um, wanting to get in? Is it just keep applying or what do you think? Yes, well, again, <laughs> going back to, um, uh, you know, this whole idea that you do have to apply and apply early. Some people say, oh, I'm not ready to apply yet because my tasting knowledge or judging is not up to scratch. Well, you actually need to get an application in to show that you are earnest about you know, continuing your your journey in the wine industry. Um, and going back to Sue Bell, who was Ducks in 04, 05, or it might have been 06. Yeah, 06. She applied for six years before she got in and then uh, was Ducks of the Year. Um, so you do need to uh, apply and apply early. We had and um, 30 applicants from 2020 and then a further 20-odd last year for the, so 100, over 150 for the 12 spots. Um, and we, you know, we we recognise where you are in the in the order of applications and, and what you've been doing. So everyone, everyone does uh, get their CV read for sure. Well, I, I certainly the beautiful booklet of wines that we tried over the, the week is one of my most treasured possessions. I look back on it and sometimes find it quite hard to believe that that even occurred in my life. Um, so I definitely encourage anyone to, to apply and apply again. Um, and 20th anniversary is going to be amazing and I will all be looking on to, to see how it goes. I'm very excited for the, the chosen scholars. Um, Riggs, I wanted to talk a bit about in 2018, you were named uh, Member of the Order of Australia for your contribution to the wine industry as winemaker. What did that day mean to you? Um, it was quite quite special and um, I don't know why I'm suddenly getting getting emotional. It, it uh, very humbling, obviously, very humble to receive that sort of um, honour uh, and I suppose... You don't do the things in terms of um, board work or the tutorial. Uh, we don't get paid for any of this. Um, I'm currently mentoring two mentees, one through Adelaide Uni and one through the um, wine communicators. Um, it's it's important to give back. It's, it's really important so that the industry not only survives, but certainly, you know, my time as board member of the um, the very fledgling um, Wine Australia, um, the Federation, um, was to show that you know, wine and is a serious agriculture um, agricultural pursuit, and it's a it's a complex one because it's a primary industry, it's a manufacturing industry, it's a wholesale industry, it's a it's a selling tertiary industry, um, and you know we need to. Uh, have all those people involved and research industry as well. You know, and uh, I, re I think it's really important that um, everyone gives back as much as they can, gives as much as the time as they can. So it was, uh, it was yeah, yeah. A, a, a lovely honour and um, very thankful and very honoured to be, uh, to be a recipient of an AM. 
Oh, well, totally, totally deserved. Um, I also wanted to touch on the fact that in 2016, you were awarded Women in Wine Awards Workplace Champion of Change. And you've also always been somebody who has really held a torch for women in the wine industry, which is a huge topic of conversation of late, but should always be. Um, you know, how have you found being that person and being that kind of spokesperson for women in the wine industry over the years? Um, well, I think uh, coming out of the 70s and 80s, it was such a male-dominated industry that um, something had to be done and the the uh, Brokenwood as a, as a workforce um, always had such quali- highly qualified and strong women involved that that um, workplace champion of change came about because we were and probably still are 70% um, female employees and all our management positions are split pretty well 50-50 across the board and it's just the way we uh, evolved Um, our winemakers at Brokenwood from Fee Pennell Caroline Dunn who used to come and do vintage did vintage five vintages with us um, Kate Sturgis at the moment, um, our vineyard manager, um, Kat Barry, Katrina Barry, took over from her father. Um, it's it's essential. And the tutorial also tries to make sure that we have a, a good split of male-female, but also states and winemaker, non-winemaker across the board. And sometimes it gets very hard to juggle um, all that to make, well, to, to, to fit... Um, 150 applicants into 12 places <laughs> can be can be quite challenging at times. But I think um, yeah, I, I just look around me the the people that I look up to Celine Risso uh, down at Eden Road just churning out some terrific terrific wine. Mel Chester, Sam Conyu who's now um, coming in the incoming chair of the Hunter Valley Wine Show. Sarah Crow, incoming chair of, of Sydney. Sue Bell, um, Karina Wright. I was about to say Karina Raymond. Made name Karina right. Um, then over the West Vanya and Virginia, and there's there's you know, such so strong people who make a difference to this industry. A hundred percent, and we're all better because of it. We're all better for the diversity of the whole industry, aren't we? Yes, yes, totally. One of, the people, one of the people I'll just quickly mention your your boss or your sorry, an old boss, not an old boss, um, previous boss. Um, Amanda Yallop, I love judging with Amanda. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Takes, takes, no, takes no prisoners whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. She is, she's ferocious and, uh, yeah, will always be my mentor and, um, very good friend. And you're right. She, she's a force to be reckoned with, but bloody good company as well. Just love, love judging with So everything that you have achieved in your career thus far, what, what do you love most about this industry and what keeps you just doing as much as you do and giving back as much as you can? What is, what is the take home at the end of the day that you think that maybe after all these years you sit and think, this is why I do it? Um, I think the, the uh, maintains the collegiate nature of this industry is very important. And just going back to Roseworthy and when Roseworthy stopped, functioning as a campus, one of the things we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks is this whole collegiate nature of the industry. And nowadays you have graduates coming through who 
probably never set foot on a campus or actually never lay eyes on their fellow students of that year. And I do wonder how that's going to fit into the future of the industry um, because uh, at the moment a lot of the, you know, the Roseworthy um, people that I've mentioned, Tamara, PJ, um, Reese, uh, Reed, um, Reed down at Kaysler, you know, all worked together, grew up together, uh, played hard together, um, and always at the end of a phone call. And that's one of the great things about the industry. You can pick the phone up and speak to anyone in the wine industry about any problem um, that you have and they're willing to talk to you. So I think keeping that collegiate nature is important. Um, I think quality is important, and that's in the future for our exports really is to keep delivering the highest possible quality wine um, at the best possible price. One day, the, our overseas markets will acknowledge our, our premium wines, not just Grange and Hill of Grace, but other wines deserve to have a three, four, five hundred, six hundred dollar price tag. And I think that's something that will happen, and we just have to keep uh, working at it. But I see the the next generation coming through. Um, so just here in the Hunter, in the recent weeks, we've had. Aaron Mercer opened a new cellar door. We've had Richard Doan from uh, currently Bimbadgen open a new cellar door for his John Wallace wines. PJ and Chrissy for the Charteris wines, a new cellar door. Wren wines, um, uh, she's just opened a new cellar door along with, you know, Usher Tinkler and the Matt Burtons that, of this world. And I think that's exciting. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunity um, ahead of the wine industry and people who, they really want to have a crack at it. They want to make it. They want to make this this their life's work. And um, God bless them. And uh, as long as they, as long as they, uh, we all support them. I hope they keep going. Yes, and 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 that is such a big part of of your personality and your um your aura is that you know to 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 bring everybody up. We've all got to get together and and you know. You've always been someone that's so um, accessible, happy to take a phone call, happy to have a chat about whatever it may be. And, um, you know, it's it's like having a big, big family spread out across all of Australia, really, which is um, something I'm very thankful for. And um, you've been a huge part of that. So now, Ian, I do want to ask, so I find out a little bit more about you, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, alcoholic be- beverages, what would they be and why? no, no, no. no. This old chestnut. Thank God it's not that bloody desert island wine question. At least I get to have a, have a range. Um, uh, I, I've got to. I've got to fess up that I'm actually. Well, we are a, a gin and tonic household. Um, we, we're lucky to have a, a big orchard uh, at the back of us, so I do a lot of dehydrated blood orange and limes and lemons and, and oranges, and and you know just love having. Gin and tonic, um, and if I could just have Tanqueray, a cupboard full of Tanqueray, um, that would be my dream start. The the in terms of, of wine, um, probably Pinot, uh, not just limited to Burgundy, but the Australia, New Zealand, um, Oregon makes some some marvelous Pinot um, styles. Burgundy, yeah, probably have a cup of full of Burgundy, but I can't afford it. So this is a, a wish list. <laughs> I can't afford Burgundy anymore. Um, 
And then thirdly, something to finish with, uh, something that's always in stock in our household and always on the shelf is 16-year-old Lagavulin Isle um, whiskey. It's, uh, there's always a bottle just sitting there ready to uh, just finish the night with. Absolutely. So yeah, I'll go with those three. I love that. I love that. Look, we're, we're on the same kind of path there, Ian, I have to say. I, I'm, you can, I can't go past a gin and tonic and Pinot of all forms. And then, you know, the, if you're going to go PD kind of whiskey, the, the Lagavulin is such a well-rounded one. And, yeah. Yes. Nicely done. Yep. Full of class you are. <laughs> 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 That's been fun. Thank you. Oh, Mr. Riggs, it's such an honour to have you on. It's a true pleasure to have your company. I will take it wherever I can get it. And um, thank you for spending part of your day with me. And I can't wait till our paths cross soon, which I think they will. And, um, yeah, thank you again. It's always a pleasure. Shante, absolute pleasure. And uh, all the best uh, for the upcoming um, few we have more weeks now. Yeah. Yep. The world is a changing and uh, we gotta we gotta go with the flow. So that's what I plan on doing. <laughs> Good on you, mate. Good on you. Thank you, Riggs. We'll chat to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod. And contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.